You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you very much, all of you who are participating in the service today. Thank you, those of you who are at home participating in the service today. Um, Beautifully well-chosen songs for the text, beautifully uh, shared with us by the worship team. Thank you guys so much. Uh, I, I just wanted to begin this morning with a word from Scotty Smith. Some of you may know Scotty Smith. He was a longtime pastor of Christ Community Church in Franklin, Tennessee, uh, at, just south of Nashville, and Scotty is a North Carolina boy originally, but he's been in Tennessee for a long time. But he has a group of pastors that he writes every Saturday and Sunday. Can't tell you how he tweets a message to these pastors. And I can't tell you, though, what a blessing it is to pastors everywhere. Because I know a lot of people follow him on Twitter. And here's what he said this morning or last night. <clears throat> Not sure when he sent this. Brothers. For the next four Sundays, keeping blasting or keep blasting our hearts with the gospel of one worthy king, one reigning sovereign, one unshakable kingdom, one everlasting hope, one perfect righteousness. Show us Jesus. Love, Scotty Smith. <laughs> that great. It just has that heart every week. In fact. I think I've received more encouragement from Scotty Smith than anybody in this season of COVID, this season of political turmoil in our nation. He always brings the focus back to Jesus. And that's where we're going to be uh, this morning, from the Word of God. Let me ask you, do you have a favorite chapter of the Bible? Psalm 23, maybe, or 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, how about Psalm 119 or Hebrews 11? John 3, John 17, or perhaps even Philippians 2. It's a great chapter in the Bible. Well, one of the problems with choosing a favorite chapter of the Bible is that the jewel that shines brightly in our hearts and minds resides in a context, in a setting, if you will, that ignites the fire, causing that, that jewel to shine so much more brightly and, and, and become more meaningful in our hearts than it would have been without it. But a lot of times we are not aware of the setting, we just see the jewel. Another problem with choosing a favorite chapter of the Bible is that the divisions in Scripture are not inspired, uh, like the text is. The chapter and verse divisions are, are mostly helpful, uh, and it was a, it, but, but they, it, it was a process that took over a millennium, and it ended somewhere in the 16th century. And remember, the original authors did not have chapter and verse in mind when they wrote. We think of Scripture in terms of chapter and verse. In fact, you hear that sometimes. Someone says, oh, yeah, you know, Scripture says, and you're like, yeah, chapter and verse. And, and another problem with that, of course, is we take that little verse out of a chapter of a book of the Bible and we use it improperly uh, to make a particular point. 
So even so, if you ask me, what is your favorite chapter of the Bible? I'm going to tell you Romans 8. I, I, maybe that's just been in the last five, six years that that would have been the case. But I remember realizing how beautifully that Romans 8 draws the first half of Romans to a triumphant conclusion. And then it sets the stage for the second half of the book, displaying the wisdom and love of the Trinitarian God about whom we sing this morning. The love of the Trinitarian God for his people in all matters, both temporal and eternal. Nonetheless, as I've said several times, I think one of the most unfortunate divisions of chapters in Scripture is between Romans 7 and Romans 8. And I'm going to explain that in a little bit. We are now on the home stretch of a series that we began on June 28th titled Conform to the Image of God's Son Jesus. Now, I know perhaps I didn't explain this well enough because I, I, I hear some confusion uh, from people. We were in the Gospel of John until COVID hit. And finishing up John 16, either just before or very shortly after, just didn't seem like a good time to continue in the Gospel of John. So we've been in different places since then. But, but in late June, we began a series called Conform to the Image of God's Son, Jesus. Uh, this series began in Romans 8, but it was in verses 18 to 30. Uh, after that initial sermon, Ricky, Jeff, David, and I have been all over Scripture thinking about the ways that God is making us like Jesus, molding us into the image of His Son. And it's, it's, I've mentioned this before, but it's like a lot of different streams that all go to the same river. When, when you're thinking about how God molds us into more, being more like Jesus, if you focus on humility, if you focus on a cross-centered life, there's so many different areas you could focus, but all of those are being used by God to mold us into the image. Well, Romans 5 through 8 really details this process in ways that I find are, are, are not found anywhere else in Scripture as thoroughly as it is done in that place. These last two weeks of the series, today and next Sunday, uh, we're back in Romans 8, and that's going to sandwich, the, these two sermons are going to sandwich the original text. Now, this morning I'm preaching from Romans 8, 1 through 17. Next week, Ricky is going to preach from Romans 8, 31, 39. At the end of a wonderful weekend of GCC together. Uh, we're really excited about that weekend. So I hope you will participate. If this is your first Sunday visiting with us, then you need a little context for today's message for this mini-series in Romans 5 through 8. If you've been here the whole way, you may be saying, oh boy, here we go again. This is the last time. But you know, the beauty of repetition is that maybe one day something you pick up something one day that you didn't pick up last week. In the second half of Romans 5, we learned that all people who have ever lived belong to one of two families. We're going to put Adam over here and Jesus over here as it has been the whole time. All are born into Adam's family who was created by God to rule over all his creation. When Adam sinned, he incurred both physical death, although not immediately, and spiritual death. 
And Adam and Eve passed that sin nature and the, and, and, and the sentence of physical death down to all of their descendants. We inherited Adam's sinful nature and the punishment for sin, both for Adam's sin and for our sin. The second family that is headed by Jesus uh, is headed by one who was sent by the Father to do something about our sin problem. He was not just anyone. He was God. And that'll be more clear as we come a little bit later on. 1 Corinthians 15 calls Jesus the last Adam. Now think about it. Adam was given an assignment and he failed miserably. Now Jesus is given the same assignment and he succeeds perfectly. He lived a sinless life. And when he willingly died according to the Father's plan, he did so as the perfect substitute, the perfect perfect sacrifice for our sins. And when we confess our sinfulness uh, to the Lord and we acknowledge it, we can do nothing about our sins, but instead we confess that our trust is in what Jesus did on the cross then we move from Adam's family to Jesus' family. God adopts us into Jesus' family. All of that is in Romans 5, 12 to 21. In Romans 6, and this becomes more important as we go, it continues to build. We're told that we have the ability to not sin. I don't have to sin anymore. Because in the same way, that we identified with Adam. It, when Adam sinned in the garden, it was as if we were with him, sinning there with him. Now, if we trust Jesus, it is as if we were with Jesus when he died on the cross and rose from the grave. And so when God looks at us, he no longer sees Adam, but he sees Jesus. And he is pleased. Now think about Jesus' baptism for just a minute. We talked about baptism in Romans 6. When Jesus went into the Jordan and, and, and John the Baptist said, No, 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 no. I can't baptize that holy head. I can't put that holy head in the waters that are so polluted with the sins of the people. Jesus said, No, I am identifying with those who have been baptized. I am a sinner. Or I am identifying with their sin. In the same way when we are baptized. We are identified with Jesus. And what did God the Father say about Jesus. When he came up out of the baptismal waters. This is my beloved son. With whom I am well pleased. When the Lord looks at us. He sees Jesus and he is pleased. No longer are we dominated by sin, but we live as though we belong to Jesus, evidenced by the choices that we make because we have a new nature. We are in Christ. Romans 7 reminds us that while we do indeed have a new nature inside us, we still have the old nature inside us as well. And this, as you can imagine, creates quite the conflict. We have an intense desire to please God. But unfortunately, the old nature has a will of its own. The struggle that is part of the Christian life, poignantly described in Romans 7, uh, talks about this conflict. And as many of you know, it's enough to drive a person almost crazy. I want to do right, but then I want to do wrong. And I I, I can't do... It's back and forth. 
The Apostle Paul said as much. He said, I'm, I'm going insane. This is where we begin today in Romans 8, which, remember, is a response to the entire first seven chapters of Romans, but it is a specially company word to those who are keenly aware of their struggle with sin at the same time the Spirit is God, the Spirit of God is working within them to make them more like Jesus. And that's why I think the chapter division is so sad between Romans 7 and 8. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So with the mind I serve the Lord and with the flesh I am serving sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we're going to get into that beautiful, wonderful text of Romans 8 right after we pray. So if you would, pray with me. Our Father, we confess. We confess our sin. And we confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And we confess this day that we are weak. And we long to love and to serve you. But the flesh is constantly dragging us down. The old man, the old woman inside of us is dragging us down. But the Holy Spirit lives inside us. And so as you have designed the Holy Spirit to live through us and to empower us and to give us victory that we are incapable of, 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 of experiencing on our own, then I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and fill them full today from your word, the Spirit and the word, inseparable, inextricably linked so may the Spirit of God work in our hearts as He makes clear to us the word that He authored through your servants as Jesus is exalted according to your marvelous plan. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John Piper spent eight and a half years preaching through the book of Romans. Now just imagine that. He spent eight and a half years preaching through the the book of Romans, and several others have spent several years preaching through Romans. My desire over these last several weeks, even though we're just looking at a portion of Romans, is to provide a framework to enable you to understand the ways, the ways that God sanctifies His children, helping them to grow spiritually. There's way too much ground to cover in the first 17 verses of Romans 8 in one servant. So again, this is just going to be a framework to assist you as you dive deeper into the text on your own or in a small group. One of the things that you should know as we move toward the text in Romans 8, 1 through 17, is there is not one imperative, not one command for us to obey in any of these 17 verses, although the information that we're going to receive will hopefully spur us to action. Let's begin in verses 1 and 2. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus. So many times, we, what is the way we identify others who believe in Jesus? We call them Christians. Word is only used three times in the New Testament. Twice it's used derisively. Um, and yet, 
in Christ is given well over a hundred times. We're united with Christ, our union with Christ. That's referred to well over a hundred times. This is a Christian. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. No condemnation. It's a beautiful word to those who realize that although God's standard of the Mosaic law is impossible for humans to achieve, some have been adopted out of Adam's family and are now in Christ Jesus where there is no condemnation. And if it's a believer reading this word, this is a beautiful word. Furthermore, the truth of Romans 6 is reiterated. Those who belong to Jesus have the Holy Spirit living in them and they are free from the principle or the reality of sin and death. Thomas Manson put it this way. Moses' law has right but not might. The law of sin has Might, but not right. The law of the Spirit has both right and might. Think about that one for a while. When you come out of Romans 5, you can understand how Paul can make the claims that he makes in Romans 6. But how can he reiterate those claims in Romans 8 when you've come out of the valley, the mess, the debacle of Romans 7 where we have struggled like crazy with our sin? Verses 3 and 4 give us the answer. And the truth in these two verses is extremely important to understand. Not only with regard to our justification or our salvation, our standing before God, but also... For our sanctification or our spiritual growth. Really important verses 3 and 4 of Romans 8. For God has done what the law. Weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Once again, Paul reminds us that the problem is not with the law. It is with our inability to keep the law. And that inability brought condemnation upon us. Verse 3 tells us that what God Or tells us what God did about our sin problem. So let's think about this for a moment. What does it mean that God sent Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh? Does that mean he was a spirit and not really a human? No, that's not what it means at all. It it means that he was human, but he was not born with a sinful nature. You look at any human anywhere and you realize that person has sinful nature. Not Jesus. He was not born with a sinful nature. His flesh was real, but he was untainted with sin. He was the last Adam. He was fully human, but he was also fully God. 100% human, 100% God. Unlike any other human who has ever been born. God sent Jesus 
in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. What does it mean that Jesus came for sin? Now, this could be intended to have a general meaning, as in Jesus came to take care of our sin problem, and that is certainly true. Or it could have a more specific meaning in that Jesus <coughs> came as a sin offering. Some of your translations say that he came as a sin offering. And the reason it's translated that way, and many think that that's what was intended here, is that the, the same Greek phrase, which is perihamartias, is also used in the Septuagint. The Septuagint, of course, being the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the same phrase that is used in Leviticus and Numbers when referring to sin offering. It's also translated sin offering in Hebrews 10, verses 6 and 8, in many of the translations that you, you will read. Jesus' death was a sin offering. It was offered as a blood sacrifice. For our sins. What did Jesus' death accomplish? Animal sacrifices had to be repeatedly offered to temporarily cover over the sins of God's people. But the righteous requirement of the law was and is fulfilled in us through Jesus. Now think about this. Jesus met the requirement of the law, a blood sacrifice, a pure, holy sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now it is said that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. That requirement that Jesus fulfilled is met in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. We receive the full benefit of Jesus' righteous life. You're going to talk about active obedience, passive obedience, and home group this week. We receive the full benefit of Jesus' righteous life. Is Paul referring here to only our salvation or to our sanctification, our spiritual growth? At the very least, he's saying that salvation is accomplished through Jesus. But the inclusion of the phrase, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, implies that more than our legal standing before God is in play. You understand what I'm saying? When we stand before God in heaven, our sins may want to accuse us, but Jesus said, nope, I paid for those sins. And he's, he's, God is like, you are in Christ. I look at my son and I'm pleased. I look at you and I'm pleased. But there's more going on here, I think. In the same way, the battle between the coexistent desire that is within us to do right and wrong is open to interpretation as to whether Paul's struggle was pre-conversion or post-conversion. So here there is room for disagreement. Now, I know some of you believe that the struggle of Romans 7 occurred before Paul became a Christian. And there's, there, Jeff Kelly said it great this week. There are good arguments for that. But there are better arguments for. In, in my, my thinking. Jeff was saying that for his thinking. In my thinking as well. That it's post conversion. It's part of the, the, the process. Or the process moving away from Adam. And toward <clears throat> Jesus. And so here people might say. 
Well, the righteous requirement that is fulfilled has only to do with our salvation. But again, <clears throat> here's what I think. Paul is not only speaking of our justification in Romans 8, 4, but also of our sanctification. It's not that we fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, but the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us according to Jesus' righteousness and the Spirit's power. This is very important. The passive voice is used here. It's not an active voice. It's not something that we are capable of generating within our own strength. Rather, the power for walking in the Spirit rather than the flesh comes from outside us. Does this mean that we're going to always do the right thing, that we'll always walk in the Spirit once we're saved? No, of course not. Romans 7 will be with us until the day that we see Jesus. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 implies the same. If we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh and the Spirit are at war against each other. And you cannot do what you want to do. While we are sinning, we will be like Paul in Romans 7 saying, why do I do this over and I, I hate this thing in me. I want to be walking in the Spirit. But while we are walking in the Spirit, we may find out of the corner of our eye that sin is attractive. Or we may be tempted in these politically charged days to unrighteous anger in the depths of our offended souls. Frustration and struggle with sin will be a lifelong battle. But the indwelling Holy Spirit changes the dynamic of the believer's life so that the frustrated Christian of Romans 7 finds the Holy Spirit-directed life of Romans 8 choosing obedience over sin in a Romans 6 kind of way. The Holy Spirit is referenced three times in Romans before chapter 8, and he's going to be referenced four times after verse 17. But the Holy Spirit is mentioned 15 times in Romans 8, 1 through 17. Do not think of the Holy Spirit as a lesser God. He is co-eternal and co-equal to God the Father and God the Son. And he has a crucial role in baptizing us into the body of Christ at salvation. And also causing and enabling us to live in ways that we are incapable of living in our own strength. Now, look, a lot of people do the right thing. A lot of people live good lives who don't belong to the Lord. But God looks at so much more than just our actions. And we can never live in a way that pleases the Lord totally. Unless we do so in the power of the Spirit. We're going to work quickly through verses 5 to 17. But, it, but I want you to notice again that there are no commands. This is entirely descriptive. Although a few places are going to. Be like, yeah, okay, you need to pay attention uh, to, the, to this text and live accordingly. Verses 5 to 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now remember, Romans 8 does not ignore the struggle of Romans 7, but it states a truth that begins to affect godly change in our understanding and our attitudes and our actions. The one described in verses 5, 7, and 8 are not those who struggle with sin, but they're fully given over to sin. Or they try to obey the law in their own strength and they're proud and they're arrogant about their goodness. Sinful ways may look really good on the self-righteous. But regardless of how good a person is, those who are in Adam and not in Christ are hostile to God. We see it everywhere in Scripture. That's why you, you talk to a person <clears throat> who is really one of the best people you know, but who doesn't know Jesus. And you say, have you ever trusted Jesus? They're offended. Like, what do you mean? Look at how much good I do. How much money I give. How many... Times I serve at the food bank and how much I do for this and that person. So <clears throat> self-righteous acts may look very good, but there is a hostility toward God that refuses to bow the knee and proclaim Christ as Lord. To know that you are united with Christ, though, it changes your perspective and it allows the Spirit to shape your mind and your heart. Verses 9 through 11. You, however, those of you who were just thinking, oh, no, is that me? Is that me? I mean, I, I trusted Christ a long time ago, but honestly, I'm not as good as, I'm not where I ought to be in my walk with the Lord. He's talking to you. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not, not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. How do you know if the Spirit of God lives in you? Is it a feeling? Well, it may depend on your personality, the way, just the way you're natured as to whether you feel this or not. But whether the Spirit of Christ dwells in you depends on whether or not you have repented of your sins and you've trusted Jesus as your only hope of heaven. What He did on the cross. To dwell on these words... From Romans 8. Builds confidence and assurance in our hearts. And increases our desire to live for Jesus. In verses 12 to 14. We are indirectly encouraged to say no to sin. And yes to Jesus. Indirectly but very emphatically encouraged to say no to sin. And yes to Jesus. So then brothers. We are debtors. Not to the flesh. You don't know the flesh anything. Not to the flesh. 
to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You hear people say when they, when they cast off the chains of Christianity, they say things like, oh, I feel so free. It's like I'm free. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who were led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. There's only one way to deal with sin in our lives, and that is to kill it. You cannot tame it. You cannot put it away for another day. You cannot flirt with it in any way. You must kill it. Bob Anderson, who started TVR, Team Valley Ranch, back in the day, back in the 60s. Um, I, I, Bob was one of my chief mentors, and, and Bob used to talk about Playing around with sin. Playing around with the flesh. And he said it's like a rattlesnake. You know you, you got a rattlesnake. And you, you think um, that you can tame this thing. You know and you wink with your left eye. And he sticks out his tongue once. And if you wink with your right eye. He sticks out his tongue. And you're thinking oh isn't that cute. He's right. Ah! Next thing you're, it's just it's over. That's the way sin is. You play with it. It is going to defeat you, you may think at times it's going to kill you. But if you live according to your calling, in Romans 8, the Spirit of God lives in you. And life will be what defines you. Not death that comes through sin. This is good news. And you must believe it even when you fail spectacularly. Guard your heart, though. Guard your heart from slipping back into a posture of seeking to justify yourself by keeping the law. That's legalism. Jesus died that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verses 15 to 17. For you did not receive... The spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Because we have been adopted out of Adam's family into Jesus' family, we are now children of God, and thus we call God our Father. After 2,000 years of intimate relationship with the Lord, we tend to take our status as God's children for granted. To be allowed to call our Heavenly Father Abba is a privilege that should drive us to Him and, and, and to drive us to walk according to the Spirit. Abba, by the way. Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Some say Abba, Abba, tomato, tomato. It, Abba is, a, is the Aramaic word. Uh, for father. It's, it's an intimate word. But it's also a term of respect. It's not just thrown out there loosely. Um, it, 
it, it's, it's what Jesus called his father in the garden of Gethsemane. John Stott says this, in the first century Roman world, an adopted son was deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. He was in no whit inferior to sta in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature. In fact, sometimes the Roman emperors would adopt the one that they hoped would be their successor. This does not mean, though, that we are adopted to a life of ease. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And it is after verse 17 that Paul goes into this detailed explanation of why we suffer and the benefit that it is to us both now and in eternity. <clears throat> I know you're busy, but if these weeks in Romans 5 through 8 have encouraged you, uh, it may be good for you to go back and read or listen to the June 28th message, which was at the beginning of this series, with the initial text found in Romans 8, 18 to 30. It will be good, also great preparation for Ricky's sermon next week from Romans 8, 31 to 39, which is, <laughs> I think most everybody would agree, one of the most glorious texts in all Scripture for believers. There are far too many directions I could go to conclude this sermon. I just want to end with a few thoughts about what it means uh, and what it might look like in your life to walk in the Spirit. To walk in the flesh is the natural thing to do. <clears throat> I've already mentioned the flesh is an imitator. <clears throat> and Adam is over here saying, okay, I think I, got, I, I think I see what Jesus is doing here. I can imitate that. To walk in the flesh is a natural thing to do. To walk in the spirit is not unnatural. It is supernatural. If you are a structured and disciplined person, walking in the spirit may mean that you need to pay more attention to interruptions in your life and to be sensitive when the spirit is moving you in a direction <clears throat> that would not necessarily have been on your calendar, on your schedule. Sometimes the Holy Spirit does not provide a 10-minute notification of what comes next. For those of us, I'm, excuse me, for those of you who are easily distracted, <clears throat> walking in the Spirit may mean bringing structure to your life that will enable you to do best things instead of good things. Or, <clears throat> and, and let me hasten to add that while words like acceptable, good, and best work well in the American mind, Real life is rarely so easily categorized. Even so, for the free spirits among us, <clears throat> spiritual disciplines are likely in order. If you're asking, but what about the OCD people? Uh, don't worry, they're way ahead of you on this kind of thing. Here is what you must not do. And this is the last word. You must not... Be frustrated with the ways that God knitted your body and your personality together in your mother's womb. What more evidence do we need of the Father's love for us 
that the Father and the Holy Spirit drew us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit of God lives in you if you are a believer. God knows your weaknesses and He has designed for you to walk in the Spirit and to glorify Him even through suffering. His great love for you began before the foundation of the world when He chose you to be in His family. You belong to Him and He belongs to you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, um, this whole text, Romans 5 through 8, was much less complex in my mind when I began than it is now. There's a lot to it. It is beautifully structured and delivered to us in your word, though, to let us know of the great love that you have for us in Christ. May the Spirit of God find a yielded and pliable servant when he comes to each one of us. May we glorify you as we take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. Thank you for the love that you have for us, a love that will be articulated and revealed yet again to us in spectacular ways next Sunday as we come to the end of Romans 8. We love you. Thank you for your plan. And ask that you may cause us to be those who walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.